Hi, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this special episode, I welcome Rich Devinney, author of the book, The Attributes. Rich was inspired to write the book after his 20 years as a Navy SEAL. Commander Rich Devinney was intimately involved in the world-renowned SEAL selection process, which whittles exceptional candidates down to a small cadre of the most elite optimal performers. But Devinney was often surprised by which recruits washed out and which succeeded. Someone could have all the right skills and still fail, while recruits he might have initially dismissed would prove to be top performers. Eventually, Rich cracked the code. Through years of observation, Davini learned to identify a successful recruit's core attributes, the innate traits for how a person performs as an individual and as part of a team. That same methodology can be used by anyone in their professional, personal, and athletic lives. Visit theattributes.com for more on Rich's book. It was an honor to have Rich on along with Brendan Bordage, himself an Army combat veteran and assistant coach at the College of William & Mary, who has a PhD in higher education and higher education administration. This podcast is dense with information. I hope you find it informative and entertaining. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to me and I'll get them answered. Check out our social media accounts as well. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, uh, real uh, pleasure and honor to have on uh, a couple of veterans today, actually. Um, so we have uh, Brendan Bordage, um, who is, uh, among other things, an assistant coach at the College of William and Mary, um, a PhD in what, Brendan? Uh, it's educational policy planning and leadership. Gotcha. Um, but you also were in the army for a stint and uh, served overseas and all that good stuff too, right? Yeah, a couple stints. So have my fun. <laughs> and then also we have um, a retired uh, Navy officer who was uh, part of the SEAL teams. Um, and then just reading through your bio, you were a commander. Yes, uh, I retired as a commander. Yeah. Okay. And then um, I guess what kind of led you to writing the book, The Attributes, was your time as being in charge of the selection process of um, SEAL Team 6. Is that kind of yeah. accurate? Yeah. Um, uh, so, without, yeah, I mean, so you've deployed, I think I read 11 times. So you, you've yeah, I think, well, 11 to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I think it was 13 or 14 total. So yeah. a lot. <laughs> you, you were busy, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, the reason why you're, we, we wanted to have you on is because of the book that you wrote called the attributes. And, um, I think it's a really interesting story that you tell in the book about, you know, kind of that, what seemed to me to be an aha moment where you were, you know, you had a guy that you had to bring in and cut because he he um, didn't know necessarily how to do the job, but he could, which mm-hmm. is what really stuck with me. And um, if you could just tell that story real quickly, that would be, I think, really set the, the table for what we're getting into here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, there, so at that selection, you're, you're obviously dealing with some very uh, talented folks who are applying to come to that selection. So you're dealing with, you know, really competent individuals already. It's not it's not basic training by any stretch. Um, and so and so when people don't make it through, um, you need to 
have reasons why that is the case. And and up till up to the point I took over training, we didn't have very good reasons. We were saying things like, well, the guy couldn't shoot very well or couldn't do this, couldn't do that. And that didn't make sense. I mean, these are guys who before coming to selection had shot more rounds than most people in the military. So so it felt disingenuous to them, to us, and our leadership was starting to ask questions. And so so it, it drove me to, and I, I kind of got, got got ordered to uh, look at it and try to articulate it. And in, in doing so, I realized I had to kind of break performance down into more elemental factors than what we typically think. And because a lot of us typically look at performance and think of those visible things we can see, such as shooting or, or throwing a ball or riding a bike or, or, or stuff like that, i.e. skills. And, and what I had to kind of determine was, you know, a lot of performance has to do with these intangible hidden qualities, um, things like adaptability and patience and situation awareness. And that, that, that drives performance at very elemental hidden levels. And so, so it really prompted me to start looking at both of those factors um, so that we could better articulate what was going on. Gotcha. Um, and so what, whatever happened to that guy, did he get his chance to come back? No, very few people get a chance to come back. Uh, so if you, if you get dropped, you're, 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 that's, that's usually it. Um, I, I'm not even sure if there's any case, I'm sure there's a couple cases of someone's come back, but, but typically it doesn't happen. So, uh, but again, those, <clears throat> those, the guys who don't make it through, they, they go back to the teams and they just, you know, they continue serving honorably, obviously. Uh, right. that, but that was the other thing, you know, you, you. You, we were facing facing this situation where guys who did get dropped go back to the teams and they'd feel pretty you know crappy about what happened and what we did and and so so to their uh, in their defense they they began to badmouth <laughs> us right. and I don't blame them because we weren't giving them good reasons they were we were just kind of treating them like like they were you know turds and they and they weren't and so uh, and so that was one of our motivating certainly my motivating factor to try to uh, upgrade that experience um for for guys so and, right. and that was the, that was the endeavor and so you you developed this list of attributes which has uh i think right now like five different areas <laughs> but there's 25 total attributes basically so um how, how did you come to develop that list and you know how did selection change after you developed that list yeah, I mean, so so the list of attributes is, you know, there were we came up with thirty six um, there. Um, I wrote about twenty five. We uh, we now with our organization, the work we do with teams and, and businesses, we we have forty two. <clears throat> and I don't think there. I mean, I have to. I'm really. I'm always looking for more, but right now, forty two is all I can kind of uh, think of or 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 kind of uh, vet out. Um, so, but in, in terms of what we did is, you know, I basically, I, I put together groups and said, okay, what are those qualities we're looking for in, in a, in an operator here? Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I put together separate groups so they could come up with separate lists and then I compared all the lists and was able to, we got, I think we, when we, when we collate everything, we had like a hundred, a hundred things. And of course, then you, you, you take away that you take out the skills because often, oftentimes skills and, and, and attributes get conflated. So like, you know, um, great runner is not an attribute or, or, or good explosives guy. That's not an attribute. And so, yes. so we had to, we had to call out those skills and, and then, and then break it down to what these attributes were. And so I, so we came up with 36 and, and really for us at the time, what it did was it allowed us to change the optic from which we were observing training. We didn't have to change training at all. In fact, it was kind of a mandate that I, I was not allowed to change training. Um, 
in the seals, it's always about what the la- what I did, wh- whatever I did that the next guy has to do, right? Whether it's basic training or the training I was running. So, uh, and then, and again, there's no, there was no reason to train, to uh, change training. The training was solid. And so, but it allowed us to change their optic of what we were seeing. So if I, if I saw a guy now who was struggling with being able to go into a room and, and make accurate shots, it wasn't about him being a bad shooter. It was about him maybe not having enough situation awareness, maybe not being able to task switch fast enough. You know, there was a, uh, if, if someone was screwing up and, and, uh, and the instructors were on him and he was just, he couldn't get out. He just kept on spiraling downward. I was seeing low resilience or, or not enough resilience is, is more accurate. And so, and so it allowed us to really um, precisely delineate what we were seeing without being kind of um, obtuse and saying, well, it's just this skill or that skill. And so, and that's, that's really what helped, helped a great deal. Right. So did you find that most of the people who came to that selection, like what percentage, I guess is a better way to ask it is have the ability, but just aren't there skill wise. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's about a 50% attrition at that place. Uh-huh. And so, and that's fairly consistent. So that's about 50% don't make it, which, um, which again, I mean, every assessment selection process implies attrition, right? But, um, uh, but we just need to articulate that attrition much, much more accurately. So. Gotcha. Um, and so if you kind of look at it through the lens of um, someone, who, a high school kid who wants to become a college athlete, Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, and then, you know, we have a college coach on here as well, Brendan, like, you know, what percentage are you looking at skills? And then what is the percentage that you're looking at attributes, Brendan? So I think it, it's pretty similar. So like in my, in my dissertation, for instance, I talked about what are the latent factors that we believe, right? So it's not just about like, motivation or a guy who's yelling a lot like that's not belief or someone saying i believe is not belief it's it's about kind of these underlying things which is what i think rich is getting at like trying to get to the the fundamental things that that you need to work on uh when everyone's already at a reasonably high level so you can translate that to you know any level of soccer you want as well when you get to division one soccer everyone can pass a ball everyone can shoot a ball you know it's, it's other things that that really create high functioning teams and high functioning members of teams so i think mostly the way that i approach it is pretty similar to what to what i think rich is talking about in the sense that we have to find the next the next thing like something that is uh something that we're assessing that is actually going to differentiate between athletes because like i said being able to pass the ball being able to shoot the ball doesn't really help you differentiate so i think we're pretty much we're on mostly the same wavelength in terms of how we're we're both viewing you know, our high-performing groups. Yeah. Um, I was curious about something when I was reading through some of your book and can certain attributes determine potential? So yeah, the answer is yes. In fact, in fact, all attributes determine potential or at least highlight potential. I, I always kind of say that skills show us what is and attributes show us what could be. Um, and so, uh, and so, you know, one of the distinguishing factors, and I and I really appreciate um, uh, Brendan's uh, perspective on this. Um, I don't talk about athletics as much um, as I do other environments, and the the reason is because a lot of what I do and what I focus on is this idea of of operating and and in fact mastering uncertainty. You know, this is what spec operators do. We 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 can drop into deeply complex and chaotic environments and begin to perform. 
Um, and one of the things that that hooked me on attributes is that when you do that, you are running pretty much on attributes. Skills actually don't don't fall into the equation because when you're in complexity and chaos, your first job is not to do. Your first job is to figure out what to do, right? So, so it's first I figure out or I make sense and then I do, you know. Um, and where this differs from athletics is that athletics is much more of a certain environment. So, so I would I would completely agree. And I think one of the challenges in the athletic world when we talk about attributes is that athletics um, you can get you can go pretty far on just skills and athletics. But I think what Brendan is trying is, is explaining, and I completely agree with, is that if you you know that if you want to be the top people, like you talk about the top athletes out there, those are athletes that not only have the skill but they have the attributes. Right there is. There's probably a lot of football players, you know, or, or quarterbacks that can throw the ball as far as Drew Brees or, or Tom Brady, right? But to do what Tom Brady and Drew Brees did takes attributes. And so and so the the project becomes a little bit more complex because in uncertainty, challenge, and stress, there almost are no skills. <laughs> it's you're all you're seeing are attributes. Attributes become so visible and visceral that uh, environments such as mine, the training environment or combat or whatever, were perfect laboratories because it was just, oh, there it is. I mean, it's so blatantly obvious, right? But on the, I, don't, I don't think it's as obvious on the, on the athletic field, which is, I think, the challenge um, that, uh, that, that Brendan is, is describing. But it is, it is quite, quite true. Yeah. And so if I could add in right there, the interesting thing about that, Rich, is that when we coach in college, especially or when you're coaching in high school, you're, you're thinking a lot about what you kind of mentioned, like what can be mm-hmm. these athletes. Like if you're a high school athlete, can you continue your career and continue to do something you're passionate about, et cetera? And if you're a college athlete, you know, this may be the end of the road for you athletically, depending on your level, but what kind of attributes can we help you develop that are going to then serve you well later in life? So mm-hmm. in one sense, it's, it's more difficult in one sense. I think it's somewhat, you have more flexibility in the way that you develop attributes because it's not about close with and kill. It's about, you know, how are you going to move through your life and and be successful and, you know, enjoy things and, and develop and continue to develop and things like that. So I think in one sense, yes, it's, it can be harder, but in one sense, it's, uh, it's more expansive. You know, there's more you can do, I think, or you can take a broader perspective in certain ways. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great distinction. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's pretty common that things get passed down from military and athletic experience. Right. I mean, you guys are kind of like the, uh, the crucibles to learn things and, and figure out how things work in intense environments. I'm not liking, you know, uh, saying that an athletic event and war are the same things, but, you know, it's still pretty, you know, intense environments in their own rights. I mean, um, yeah, man, it's, it's pretty hot out here. So, you know, it's, it's <laughs> <tough>. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a hot day in Southeast Virginia. That's for sure. Um, so let's, um, I know that we have a hard stop in about a half an hour and I know that, um, uh, the reason why I wanted to have Brendan on with you, Rich, is because of, you know, just a self-efficacy discussion. And I and I read that portion of your book and it just it really clicked for me, like um, how important it is to be self-efficacious as you, you know, whatever endeavor you're, you're taking on and whatever you're trying to master. Um, and it, I think that 
it's important to bring a level of, of, you know, a high level of that. And I want you to kind of describe, you know, the way you do in your book, um, what self-efficacy is. And then Brendan, please, like, I want you guys to, you know, have a good conversation around that because I think it'll be pretty educational. Yeah, absolutely. Well, sir, I, I want to, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to hear Brendan's take on this. I mean, I'm, I, I've not done a dissertation on it. So, so, it's, uh, so I'm going to go with a generic layman's version here. Um, but the way I defined um, self-efficacy after doing some research on it was this idea that it is a, um, first of all, self-efficacy often has to do with the, uh, it often has to do with kind of singular goals or objectives like there's a project there's some sort of project or something to do or accomplish um and it's a kind of a combination of this uh of, of kind of three things it's a combination of confidence which is i know i can do this uh it has initiative which i have the i have the ability to get started that's kind of the self-starter aspect and then this kind of realistic optimism that uh that as i go through it i'll figure it out along the way and i think those three things are what uh, describe uh, self-efficacy or the self-efficacious person. Because if you don't have, if you're in absence of one of those three, three things or two of those three things, then you're not really, you know, you're not really, you're not really moving, right? I, I can be confident that I can do something all day long. If, I'm not, if I can't, if I don't have the initiative to start or the optimism that I can figure it along the way, nothing's going to happen. It's, it's inert. I can be, I can have initiative, right? I can get started all day long. If I don't have the confidence or the optimism, then I'm just going to have frenetic energy. I'm not going to really go where I need to go. Um, and then finally, I can have um, I can have optimism. But if I have just optimism and no confidence and initiative, then, well, that's just that's just high in the sky thinking. And so you have to combine the three to actually make the self-efficacious person. And so so as an attribute, that's just you see it more in certain people than you do others. And so so that's my very layman general definition. I'm excited to hear what uh, what Brendan thinks about that whole that whole thing. Yeah, I actually haven't heard it described in that three pronged way. Uh, my study focused a lot on how to develop. Like, what are the sources? of efficacy belief, whether it's a individual or collective efficacy. And then how do you how do you set conditions in your environment to develop those those beliefs? And so I like that you mentioned the uh, the idea that it's often a very specific task or goal that you set for yourself because one of the biggest things that I came across in my research was just the idea of, of how context specific efficacy beliefs are. So yeah. one of the examples that is often thrown out there is like, you can have a ton of confidence in your ability to drive a car, but if I put you in downtown San Francisco and you're looking at a 60 degree upslope and driving a stick, you might not feel great about your ability. Even though you might be great at driving a car, the context matters, yeah. right? And so I can feel really physically confident in who I am right now. That does not mean I am ready for selection. Yeah. And those types of things are really important to understand that someone who, like you said, someone who's just confident, you know, can often project an ability to accomplish a task. But if they don't have that motivation or the initiative, like you mentioned, and they don't have a realistic perspective on who they are and what their skills are at that moment or what their attributes are at that moment, it's going to be very hard for them to sustain any kind of belief. And that applies not only to individuals, but to groups. So I, I like the way. I like that three-prong approach, and I'm probably going to steal that and start talking about it a little bit um, <laughs> because I think it really fleshes out the idea of once you've identified sources and you've figured out how you want to develop those sources, then we start getting into that idea of assessing and saying, 
well, we've done all these things and we don't have the belief that we think we should. So which, which of the three prongs is missing, which I think could be a really useful tool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm breathing a decided sigh of relief because someone who has studied it way more than I have agrees. So I'm, I'm I appreciate that. I'm glad it, I'm glad it resonates. <laughs> That, that wasn't a move to trap you, believe me. I just, I just thought that it could be fun. Yeah, so you used, um, I think you did use a driving example in, in your book, actually, where you, uh, you were yeah, in Ireland. Yeah, I used it. I can't remember where I used it. Um, it might not have been self-efficacy. Yeah, but. I think I did. I mean, I use car examples quite a lot. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that that was like, I think, if you, yeah, I, yeah, in fact, I did. If you get in a car and you're just confident you can drive a car, but have no initiative, you're not going anywhere. If you're, if you just have initiative and no confidence or optimism, you're just, that's like the, that's like the kid who mashes the accelerator with no direction to go, right? Um, yeah. And then if you have optimism, you'll just sit in the car and go nowhere. <laughs> so right. uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, it is funny. Um, the, the story that you kind of framed this around was, um, uh, sounded like a friend of yours, Sandy Travis, who mm -hmm. um, had a remarkable story actually. Um, you know, maybe you, you can jump into that a little bit and describe her story. And, um, I'm, I'm sure there's more to the story at this point. Yeah. Well, she's a remarkable woman and, um, and, you know, and local. Uh, so, uh, so she's, she's around here, but she, I mean, she went through several, um, several big pivots in her life. And I think I, and again, I have to forgive me. It's been a while since I've refreshed myself, but, um, but one of the, one of the first pivots was her just um, having to, uh, you know, her, she got a divorce and she completely had to change her entire lifestyle. She moved somewhere else and just began, picked up and began a new lifestyle. Um, and then the other one that's kind of highlighted is her, her, uh, her fight with cancer, um, which she really kind of attacked in a very, um, in a very, positive way and she kind of looked yeah. at it as hey i this is something i this is a, this is a challenge i get to do and she was she had the confidence the initiative and the optimism she knew she was going to get through it and she saw it as it was almost that growth mindset thing um right. and so and so she's just someone she was someone in my immediate experience and, and a friend that i could use as an example of this idea of of the pivot and um and that pivot i mean it's it's really those in, in life, we have those pivots and the pivot is kind of the extreme example of of needing to be self-efficacious. But your life is just it takes a different direction and it's either a choice or it's a or it's something that happens to you. But both require for success, both require efficacy. And so I think that those I think we should all be aware of our pivots because they're going to happen, you know. But also, I think part of growth is to sometimes just pick a new pivot, which Sandy is also an example of just picking, making a decision. And and most military, in fact, all military folks who transition from the military are deliberately choosing a pivot. And so um, and so she had worked with me at, at uh, I had worked with her actually at a at a SEAL. Uh, it was a transition course to help help uh, SEALs and special warfare folks transition into civilian life. Um, so she was such a remarkable example of this of this pivot and and. And the idea that yes, as you transition from the military, it's a huge pivot. You're literally, uh, in many cases, unless you're, I guess unless you're, unless you're going to take a, a civilian job for the government at the at the at the place you previously worked, <laughs> which is not, you know not, it's a different kind of pivot, but not as extreme. You're gonna you're jumping off one mountain and into the valley, and you're gonna choose to you're gonna decide to climb up a new mountain, and that that is a pivot, and that takes self efficacy. And pivot doesn't mean failure. So like if you oh no yeah no yeah if you um. If you're again framing it in what we're talking about, I mean, it's the kid who had the had the goal of being a, a Division One athlete, let's mm -hmm. say, and you know, it pans out that 
they had to go to a D3 school. And so that's a pivot, right? I mean, so I think just having the wherewithal and the self-awareness to understand and be honest with yourself, right? Um, yeah. is, well, is pivots, I will say this, it's, it's not really, um, it's not a, uh, a useful endeavor to judge pivots in any way, positively or neg- negatively. They are just, they're simply a change in direction. And, um, and it's upon you to actually embark upon that new direction um, and, and set judgment aside. It's kind of like good luck, bad luck type thing. You just, hey, this is, the, this is what's happening. Either if it's happening to me, it's happening. There's nothing I can do to stop it. So I have to perform or I'm deliberately making this pivot, right? Um, which, but, but to place judgment on either way is not a good, not a, not a positive endeavor. So Yeah, you just kind of, uh, I think I made a note that you just kind of have to accept them. Right. You accept hiccups and and that's just part of the process and journey. Um, Yeah. Uh, How do you, how do you define kind of, so you, you, you have this goal and, you know, you, you approach it with self-efficacy, but sometimes those can just kind of be hubris, right? I mean, it's, you know, when do you, how do you delineate between realism and, you know, a dream, so to speak. In terms of, in terms of the goals we set, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. And when do you come to the, uh, again, I mean, I I didn't write this down, so I'm trying to think it through as I'm asking it, but you know, just, you know, there's times where your, your goals turn out to be a little bit much, right. And and you're not, you don't necessarily, you're not going to reach them, but but that's okay. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I'm someone who believes in audacious goals and, and I think, and I talk about how narcissism actually helps us set some of them sometimes. Right. Um, but I, I, I really, I've always been someone who really believes in this idea that, Hey, if I, if I decide to set a goal that in the next five years, I'm going to go to Mars. Okay. And I just start working towards that. And five years later, I'm only at the moon. I'm still at the moon and everybody else is back on earth. Right. And so, and so I think, um, I think there's a, there's a value in setting audacious goals because it drives you in a direction. And I think there's a value in staying a little bit loose on it. Um, I mean, folk, you know, you know, you know, you keep it in, you keep it in, in the vision, but you're, 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 you're kind of resolute in the outcome, but flexible in the approach. And I think that, and I think the approach will sometimes take you different directions and, and as long as you feel like it's been a um, it's been a, a positive uh, and and forward moving process, in other words, you are you are becoming and growing to someone better than you were before. Then it's, that's the, the goal is accomplished. You know, the the audacious end state is simply the was the impetus to get you moving and get you started. Uh, so so I'm always in favor of big audacious hairy big hairy, big hairy audacious goals. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Brendan, I can't see you. So if you have anything to add in, please jump in. If you're, uh... it's, it's been a while since I heard the BHAG term. So I appreciate you bringing that up, Rich. Um, I, I, I agree. And I think in athletics, especially, you know, the, you hear about the process all the time, right? Like Nick Saban is a famous example. He, you know, capital P process is everything in his program, everything that he, that he works on and focuses on in his program. Now, does that mean that Alabama doesn't have the goal to win a national championship every year and to go undefeated? Of course not. It's their goal every year. But he tries to maintain focus on getting better every day and the incremental steps that will potentially get you there. And like Rich mentioned, 
if you are getting better every day, that is a goal in and of itself. And so it's important to set short-term, mid-term, and long-term goals. And sometimes those long-term goals, like you said, might be a little narcissistic, but they are incredibly important in terms of keeping you on the right azimuth or going in the right direction. Yeah. And this falls under grit, I'm guessing, right? I mean, well, a little so- bit. A little bit. I mean, um, it takes grit. I mean, it falls under drive. Um, again, these attributes, I, I categorize these attributes just to kind of help um, help uh, make them a little bit more understandable. And I, I, pl- I plucked them or I, I dumped them into categories that I thought really made sense for, for the overall definition of them. But but they are, they do cross-pollinate. I mean, in other words, you, you know... Um, you know, part of, you know, there is, there is self-efficacy involved in grit. There is courage involved in leadership. There's, you know, there's perseverance involved in team ability, right? So, but, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, if we're talking about goals, um, you're going to require almost all of the attributes, at least the, at least the, the first three categories, grit, drive, and mental acuity, all of those will become, will, will be, will be accessed as you're driving towards a goal. But again, you probably need leadership and team ability as well, because you're probably working with other people. Um, and so, and so, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily ever accomplish these things on our own. So, so that those other ones will come into play as well. So I think all of them are at play um, in any goal that we're, we're achieving. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you had five categories and they were grit, mental acuity, drive, which self-efficacy is a mm-hmm. part of. Um, leadership and team ability. Yeah. Um, and something, the reason why I asked that that's part of grit is because we were talking about persistence and, um, which you put with tenacity. Right. Um, uh, and then, you know, perseverance is kind of the balance of, of all of the, so with persistence, you have to be patient, correct me if I'm wrong. And then tenacity, is an implication of impatience. Yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that right? Now there, I mean, there, there are three separate attributes. Um, perseverance is this is this constancy in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving it. Right. So that's it's just it, it could, persistence can be described or pers- perseverance can be described as I'm just I'm just pushing through. I'm just constantly pushing through. So so in mm-hmm. any type of pushing through endeavor you will be faced with uh, either being sometimes persistent or tenacious. Ter- per- persistence and tenacious, however, do they are separate because they're different, right? Persistence is this kind of stubborn obstinance in I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on doing something the same way over and over because I know it's going to work. I know it's right, right? This is the stone cutter approach. The stone cutter taps that stone 100 times in the same place and then sees nothing. And then the 101st tap, something, you know, it, it breaks, right? So that takes persistence. Tenacity, on the other hand, is I'm going to try something uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna endeavor upon something. I'm gonna try something. If it doesn't work, I'm gonna shift my approach. I'm gonna try something new. If that doesn't work, I'm gonna shift my approach. I'm gonna try something new. Right? That's the car mechanic, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna check the belts. If it's another belts, I'll check the carburetor, so on and so forth. But you can see how you don't want you you, you don't want the tenacious stone cutter. Okay, the tenacious stone cutter will never get the rock carved because he'll keep on tapping different parts of that rock. And the and the persistent car mechanic is just gonna check the belts and check the belts and check the belts and check the belts. Right? So. So those attributes live on their own, and in some applications, they are required as singular attributes. And I think perseverance is just a kind of a holistic. I'm going to sort of, I'm pushing through whatever it takes, whatever it needs to do, whatever I need to do to keep on going. I'm going to do, and that might you might be in some cases accessing tenacity, or other cases accessing um, persistence. 
Right. So if Brendan is recruiting a kid um, and you notice that he has, he's right footed and he has a, a weak left foot, um, he has to have the attribute of persistence to continually work on that left foot to, to develop that skill. Yes, so, unless unless that uh, unless the development requires changing approaches all the time. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I would say he needs a he needs a healthy level of, per, of perseverance to to develop because he be, unless he has the solution, unless unless some doctor says, "Hey, listen, your your left foot will be developed if you just do this over and over again, guaranteed." Then he needs persistence, right? Just do it over and over until it works, right? <laughs> but he right. might be he might be trying to solve the problem. And we say, well, I'm going to try this, and that doesn't work. So let me try something else. So that didn't work. So so you can see how it it it, it could require both, depending, you know. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. What you're talking about a little bit there, Scott, is in the athletic realm anyway. It sounds to me like the difference between individual development and team development, just just writ large. Like obviously there are, there are counter examples that you can come up with, but in terms of being persistent, like if you want to develop a particular skill as an athlete, often it's mostly going to be about persistence. You know, we hear about Michael Jordan and you have to just talk 10,000 times to become an expert, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you talk about the team environment, because it's more complex and it's you have to be more flexible, that requires more of the tenacity. Like, hey, we've been attacking down the right side for 20 minutes here. It ain't working. What's the next thing? Can we, can we shift our focus and try something new? And then if that doesn't work, can we shift our focus? And try something new. So I think in terms of the soccer sense anyway, skill development is all about persistence, I would say. Unless you're going to completely change positions. You're like, I'm just not fast enough to be an outside midfielder. I'm going to go be a goalkeeper, which is basically how my career developed. Uh, but when it comes to team stuff, you know, there's there's a huge element of tenacity there. Maybe not quite as much persistence because you don't want to just keep trying the same thing over and over again. You're going to run out of time. So if it's not working, you got to find a way to, to kind of shift your focus and do something new. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that distinction. And what that what that distinction allows uh, for me is it allows me to kind of um, also describe it environmentally. Right. The, the more the more certain the environment, stable the environment, the more persistence is applicable versus uh, the less stable, the less predictable the environment tenacity might be applicable when you're dealing with the teams with teams and other teams and opponents, you're going to be in an environment which is less predictable and you have to try different approaches. Whereas if you're standing on a free throw line, and you just want to you just want to learn the skill, right? That environment is is fairly stable and predictable, and persistence does win the day. So, yeah, I think that's a great distinction. Yeah, and even within sports, you can see differences. You know, football is very yeah. football is very choreographed. I mean, there is an opponent who is unpredictable, but there's a lot more choreography that goes into it. Soccer's kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. Um. So one, another thing I wanted to talk about was um, can attributes be developed? And, yeah. you know, you get a baseline of what your attributes are. Um, you offer an assessment mm-hmm. um, that, you know, people can determine where their attributes are. But uh, one thing that, that I got out of the book was the more often you throw yourself into environments that require um, mental and emotional strength, um, I'll just read it, uh, to get through. So the more you're required to use mental and emotional strength and energy, um, the more you'll hone your attributes and yeah. well, actually it's, and you wrote fortitude. I'm sorry. 
but uh, mental for yeah fortitude yeah no it's it is good so the answer is yes you can develop attributes that you're low on uh, mm-hmm. it's, there's three things there's three criteria that are required to develop an attribute okay one is you have to know you need to develop it so you need to know you're low two is you have to have a motivation or or requirement to develop that and the reason why I say that is because sometimes depending on the niche you're in. Uh, having the, having a low level is exactly where you need to be. You know, in other words, I, yeah, I usually I use the stand up comic. A stand up comic with too much empathy is not going to be a very good stand up comic, right? So, so just because you're low on something doesn't mean you have to develop it. But if you are in the position, okay, I know I know I'm low on it. I, there's a need, there's a motivation, there's a requirement to develop it. And then the third one is the most important. That is, you have to go f- deliberately find environments that test and tease and develop your that attribute, whatever that looks like for you. So I use patience if 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 you're low on patience and you want to develop your patience, you have to go find environments that test and tease and develop your patience, whatever that might look like. It could be I'm going to deliberately drive in traffic or I'm going to pick the longest line in the grocery store to stand in. I always say have kids. Having kids will develop patience, right? But um, but whatever that is, you can do that with any attribute that you're low on if, again, you there's a need, there's a, there's a need or requirement to do so. Right. Um. And I, I feel like as we're kind of winding down here, that uh, a good story for you to tell, um, and, and if you have others, please throw them in there from your experience. Um, but your friend Hank, mm-hmm. you talk about in the book, um, just how he, you you brought up two different scenarios that he was in where he used his attributes to, I mean, just be a rock star, yeah. really. I mean, um, so if you could delve into those, you know, That'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Hank, I think, um, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. Hank was uh, Hank was my troop chief, um, and um, and so he was a senior enlisted guy in my troop. I was a troop commander, uh, and and the two chapters I I describe and we tell his story and uh, his first perseverance. Um, he had an incident where he um, had had been previously a troop chief and had been had been relieved and sent home, which is a big deal, and um, kind of put on penance, and he. He used his perseverance to actually get through that very kind of tough, dark time so that he could basically get another shot at being a troop commander, which was when he and I got to work together. And it was obviously phenomenal. So that was one way he really kind of used that perseverance to do that. And then the second chapter that we talk about him was resilience, because after he retired, he began doing some contract work overseas and was it was in Afghanistan and, and stepped on a landmine. So he lost both of his legs, double, double amputee immediately. Um, and that that trend or that that journey from you know getting injured and, and learning how to walk again and, and I mean your whole life obviously has changed you know everything about your life has changed uh, is such a story of resilience of the ability to, the, the ability to bounce back to to the, the to where you were before right it's that elasticity of the human being right you 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 pull that you know, that rubber band and you let go and it goes back to the original shape that's that's resilience and that that resilience is required for both success and failure. Uh, because to, because if you can't if you can't effectively get back to baseline, you risk in the failure case you risk um, entropy and and slowly going down a spiral. Um, in the success case, you risk arrogance and complacency. So so that that bouncing back is and that resilience is incredibly important. And, and Hank was just a great a great story to describe that, and obviously a great friend, and we still see each other often. So. Yeah, I mean, you also talk about taking two minutes to celebrate something yeah. and 
two minutes to wallow in your sorrow, That's basically. Right. Yeah, the two minute rule. And, and again, the two minute rule, which my one of my RCOs taught us is like, okay, if something bad happens, take two minutes and, you know, again, wallow, kick the dirt, whatever you need to do, then get back to work, right? Get back to baseline. And then if something great happens, take two minutes and rest on your laurels and celebrate and do whatever you need to do, pat yourself on the back and then get, right. and then get back to baseline, right? Uh, now the, the, the cat, the, 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 um, the warning label on that is that's that's for practicing re- resilience for small tragedies, like small things. You know, there's there are things that happen to us that take a lot more than two minutes to bounce back from. Um, and there, there are great things that happen to us that we want to celebrate for a lot more than two minutes. Right. But but you can you can exercise your resilience muscle with a two minute rule on kind of what we call the little tragedies in life. And um, that's the spat, you know, with the with the loved one or the or the traffic jam or the hard day at work. You know, those little things or the spilt milk. Um, those little things you can you can practice re- resilience and use the two minute rule to do so. Yeah, yeah. You talked about Hank and when he was a kid and his mother, uh, and he <laughs> dropped a giant gallon of milk all over the floor. And, yeah, you know he was expecting to have his hair parted by his mom, and and she just uh, kind of said, "Go get the paper towels." Yep. So <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the kids that that uh, you know in youth sports they deal if. A division one coach isn't giving them a lot of love, then they they can take that personally, and it's probably a dangerous slope to to take it personally um, and just see it more, you know, what you're talking about and in, in the resilience or attribute and you know just understanding it's not personal and that they it's an opportunity to to find something else or or grow and and that sort of thing. Yeah. Can I throw something in here, Scott? I Please. just wanted to make a, a quick point that. That idea that resilience works both ways is something that I hadn't thought about because we so often frame it in a negative way. Like resilience is getting from low to higher, right? Or getting from low back to baseline. But it also takes a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of resilience to limit yourself to that two minutes and bring yourself back to baseline when something great happens. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really interesting way to to look at resilience. That it's not a one way street. It's not always about a negative experience that we have to overcome. But sometimes it's about having respect and honoring that baseline and understanding the importance of that baseline and knowing you have to get back to it regardless of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, uh, we had um, a guy named Jay Demerit on Rich who um, he was on the U.S. men's national team for soccer. and But his story was pretty remarkable that he just decided after college he was going to go make it in English soccer. And he, um, so he like started at the very bottom and there's like 20 different divisions, I think in English soccer. And he made it all the way to the top and, you know, he's standing there and at the, at the pinnacle kind of, and they're, they're playing the songs before the match and he's just standing there and he, and he has a Ted talk about being prepared for your sunny day, not just a rainy day, you know? And and that's I think that's what you're talking about, Brennan, is kind of resilience in the less traditional way of thinking about it, possibly. So, um, so, Rich, you got any good stories like uh, about you know guys who have wowed you? Um, you know, you talk a bit about jumping out of a back of an airplane, and you know, I know that there are probably things that you can't and won't talk about, but like just things that, that were a good example of just attributes where, you know, people you used to work with really just amazed you. 
I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I guess so many stories. I don't know if I could tell any explicitly, but uh, but I will say this. I mean, I, I was I was so fortunate to be able to work with a caliber of 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 person that um, was so uh, kind of so properly indexed on all these attributes and just such top high performers. And I think um, that that well, it allowed a few things for me in my life. A um, it allowed me to learn so much about what causes this. And that's really where I got really peed into and interested in performance and optimal performance and kind of this whole mastering uncertainty. Cause I, I was, I lived it and, and, and I, I, I was in it and I performed it and I saw guys do just such remarkable things just around me. So that's one, but the other thing, it, it just, it completely upped my game. It, it changed my life in a way that I don't, I don't understand. I don't know or want to know what my life would be having not done it because I became something more than I ever imagined I would uh, because of the people I surrounded myself with. So I think, I think all of us can kind of take this lesson and say, and, you know, and tell ourselves that we, we are a reflection of the people we surround ourselves with. And, um, and if we choose to surround ourselves with people who we can learn and grow and, and, and people who are actually better than us, I mean, we have to, this is where we we put down our ego, but I've always surrounded myself with people who are better than me, you know, and, and I don't think of my, I've always, I've always had a slight level of imposter syndrome and no matter what I've done, but I use that for me, that's a, that's a, that's a goal and a strength because that means I'm surrounding myself with people who are, who are upping my game. Um, and I think that's the, the best gift, the greatest gift I was able to come out with it, uh, come out of a career uh, with. Um, and then of course I, these distinctions, I just love, I love making them. So that's, that's, that's been awesome. Yeah. Um, Brendan, you got anything else to add? No, I'm good on this end other than to say it's been really interesting and enlightening to hear from you, Rob, and I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to, to chat a little bit. Yeah, well, Brendan, I, 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 it's a pleasure. My, my son is, uh, is looking to go to William & Mary, so uh, he, he might see you up there in a, in a year or two, so we're, we're angling that way, so, so hopefully that'll be the case. It's a heck of a place. Good. Yeah, my son's here now, so... Uh, good. Good. Yeah, it's it is a good place. Um, so, uh, guys, uh, thank you. Um, thanks for uh, sharing all that you guys have been working on, and um, you know, thanks for all you guys have done for our country too. Um, I never know uh, what the right way to say that is, but you know, thank you. Yeah. So it's all you need, um, you, friend. That's all you need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, just want to be respectful of your time too, Rich. So. Um, Cool. Anything else you guys have to add? Otherwise, we'll wrap it up. All good. Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. I hope you found it informative and enjoyable. Thank you for sharing and subscribing to the podcast and helping it grow. Please keep sending questions and comments. I enjoy the feedback and always get your questions answered by my guests. Don't forget to check out Match Play on social media as well.